Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I spoke to Professor Michael Mick Cox, the founding director of LSE Ideas. Professor Cox has also served as chair of the United States Discussion Group at Chatham House, a senior fellow at the Nobel Institute in Oslo, as visiting professor at the Center for Defense and Strategic Studies in Canberra, Australia, and as chair of the European Consortium for Political Research. Professor Cox joined us on July 21st, 2021, to discuss his new article in the journal International Politics, What Do Think Tanks Do? Chatham House in Search of the United States, and How Think Tanks Affect Policymaking in the US and the UK. We also spoke about his upcoming book of essays, Agonies of Empire, which outlines the ways in which five different American presidents, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, have addressed the complex legacies left them by their predecessors while dealing with the longer-term problems of running a modern-day empire under increasing stress. Professor Michael Cox, thanks so much for speaking to The Ballpark today. So, to get started, in your new paper in International Politics, you look at the development of independent research and discussion on the U.S. by Chatham House. You've written that up until the 1990s, there was little of this activity. Why was this change occurring at this time? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Michaela. And thanks for having me on to talk about this, this particular paper, which is What Do Think Tanks Do? <laughs> That's the title. Uh, and uh, it's about the role of the Chatham House in the study of the United States and American foreign policy, largely not domestic politics. Well, the reason why, there's two reasons, there's two questions really. One is about whether, how much Chatham House did on US foreign policy before the end of the Cold War and before 9-11, um, which is an interesting story in its own right. They did quite a lot of work on Anglo-American relations, the special relationship. Chatham House was part of an Anglo-American sphere intellectually as well. Chatham House was established more or less at the same time as the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And in fact, they all, they all came out of the Versailles Peace Treaty. So there's one question about why there weren't more books written about US foreign policy, even though, of course, Chatham House, uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs took a very great interest in what was going on over in the United States, both before the Second World War, during the Second World War, and, and after, during the Cold War. But as, as one of the directors pointed out in, in, a, in a paper in 75th anniversary of Chatham House um, in 1995, he said, it's quite odd, really, because we've done, we kind of think about America a lot. We kind of, you know, discuss it a lot, but we haven't written very much about it as, as books. And there have been a lot of books coming out of Chatham House over very many years. And so that's how I really got increasingly involved in it. Right? There's a long way to get to your question, Chris, isn't it? But but here we go. Basically, what happened was Chatham House then approached me and said, look, we really need to have a book <laughs> written on contemporary U.S. foreign policy, not in general. Everybody has done that. And there wasn't no point repeating what had been said elsewhere by people probably better qualified than me to write about it, especially a lot of Americans. It has to be said as well. Uh, but they wanted something really to kind of try and work out what U.S. foreign policy was looking like after the Cold War. After the Bush senior administration, which came to an end in 91, to, and in essence, what I focused on in the, in the book, the short book, it's called a Chatham House paper, but it's 150 pages long. What I focused in on whether or not the, whether or not the new superpower, the only superpower, 
in the unipolar moment had a mission any longer. Now it no longer had an enemy. That was, that was what I was really focusing on. And at the time, there was actually, you, you may or may not be surprised to hear this, people pretty skeptical about Clinton on foreign policy. Oh, he doesn't have one. He only knows economics. He's got no grand strategy. He's only interested in domestic stuff. And I tried really to pull out from Clinton's speeches, those of his Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, his advisors like Anthony Lake and a whole number of other very, very capable people at the time, what a liberal foreign policy would look like and did look like in a post-Cold War environment. And that's how the book arose. And what I did then was to emphasize all the things that Clinton actually was focusing in on, which tended to get ignored by more mainstream, particularly on the economics, particularly on globalization. So that's how it began, Chris, point one. Point two, of course, I finished the book. The book came out. It did pretty well, actually. Uh, for a British guy writing on US foreign policy, I think it did rather very well, actually, uh, which was very nice to people, got good reviews, particularly from Americans, by the way. And then, of course, along comes 9-11. And by that stage, I had already developed good relations with people inside Chatham House. And the new director, a man called Victor Bulmer-Thomas, who'd been in director of the Institute of Latin American Studies here in London, said, come along, we want to talk about setting up a, a, a US discussion group, which we haven't had, you know, at all. So I came along and of course it coincided with 9-11. And so the, the second phase of getting much more involved was the creation of this United States discussion group at Chatham House, which lasted more or less for the duration of the Bush presidency and a little bit beyond after the election of President Obama in 2008. And what we did there really, I mean, you know, literally it was what was on the can really, we discussed and we analyzed and we published things we brought out a short report. We brought a lot of people together in London. But by the way, we also did trips to New York and Washington. But we did a lot of discussion really about what were the contours of American foreign policy after 9-11 in the wake of the Iraq war, the so-called war on terror, focusing in on both the academic ways of looking at, at the Bush grand strategy, the Bush doctrine, and also thinking about some of the consequences of Bush's foreign policy. I think now people forget how shocking it all felt after 9-11, how threatening it all felt, and how, in some ways, how radical the Bush foreign policy was after 9-11. After and we were trying to really come to grips with what that meant. And of course, having a big London-based think tank like Chatham House, you know, was a very good base from which to do it. The third part of it, with which I've still been involved, but it's, I think what happened was that the United States discussion group, uh, and this is my last point really, is in, in a sense, acted as a segue for the work that then started to be done increasingly, better funded, uh, more resources, more staff, to think about the United States at Chatham House. The, the new director by then was Robert Niblett, who's still there. He, he did a lot of his early work. He did his PhD at Oxford, but he had worked in the think tanks in Washington. Uh, he, was, uh, he then recruited a, a person called Xenia, Xenia Dormandy, who had also worked in the United States, she was indeed American. And then when Xenia uh, moved on to, to, uh, to other places, uh, they then re recruited Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri, an, another American. Uh, and in a sense, what I think the United States discussion group did was take us from one moment where, in a way we might say that it had been fairly intermittent analysis of US foreign policy, although there's been some good stuff done, don't get me wrong, particularly in the, in the House Journal, uh, International Affairs, to a new phase, which is now a US program, a US and America's program, which interestingly, by the way, uh, 
also includes Latin America, South, South America, if you want to call it that, and the Caribbean. So the position now, I'd like to think that I did something to bring this about, the, the position now of American studies, at least US foreign policy studies, at Chatham House, I think, is in a very, very healthy, healthy place. And I'd like to think that one of the things I did was help facilitate that in, in, through the United States discussion group and my earlier book, which came out in 1995. Thank you very much for that. So my next question is, is sort of follows on from, from what you've just been talking about. And what role would you say that Chatham House and, and maybe think tanks more generally, what, what role do they play in shaping a transatlantic perspective of the U.S.? And can think tanks really affect policymaking on, on either side of the Atlantic, actually? Well, I think firstly it depends which, what the think tanks are, how serious they are, how well-funded they are, how well-resourced they are. And also I might say what their credibility is as think tanks. You know, there's so many, there's, well, I don't know how many think tanks there are in the world today. Uh, several thousand, I suppose, all around the world. Some with probably just one room and, and the proverbial dog and some which are pretty substantial, have a long historical uh, pedigree and are taken seriously on both sides of the Atlantic. And to be taken seriously in the United States, you have to be serious, but rather, you know, in a pretty inept way, but you know what I'm trying to get at. And the point was that Chatham House really from day one has always had credibility the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Chatham House is the house it lives in, by the way. It's actually called the Royal Institute of International Affairs, as you know. And from the very beginning, the origins of Chatham House as a think tank, although nobody used that term then, by the way, Chris, it's only a modern term, really. You know, it grew out of Versailles, the Anglo-American meetings, which took place in a famous hotel, which you've talked about. I know Chatham House has talk, talked about on its own website. Um, you know, they met, they discussed these Brits and Americans, not only, but them largely. Maybe the facilitation of language, Lloyd George, Wilson were in many ways, you know, dominant figures at the Versailles Peace Treaty, never to forget Clemenceau, of course, but there you are. The Anglo-America kind of relationship, the special relationship, as it was later called, you know, really grew out of that and out of the wartime experience and out of the meetings that took place at Versailles. And they basically said, look, we never thought this war was going to happen. It's lasted much longer than we'd ever anticipated. It's been a total disaster for Europe. There's been a Russian revolution. Empires have collapsed. You know, there's no, inst there's no stability. We've got a financial system teetering along. America's retreating into potential isolationism. Woodrow Wilson is not going to get his, uh, you know, get the Senate to agree to the League of Nations. You know, pretty critical moment in, in world history, international history of the 20th century. And so it really was a very Anglo-American uh, debate. And, and it's out of that, really, that the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council of Foreign Relations, which I, I called one of the preeminent think tanks in the United States, all created in and around the same time. So the answer to the question really gets back to the history of Chatham House and the credibility that it's always had as, 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 as a transatlantic as well as an Anglo-American, an Anglo-American and, and transatlantic space within, one, within which one could discuss a transatlantic relations, Anglo-American relations, and of course, American foreign policy, but without, as I said earlier on, without at first, for many years, actually publishing a book. So that was very, very important. It had been, to be honest, it had been very difficult to do what I did, come into Chatham House, I, I always had a relationship with it, but to come into Chatham House in the early 1990s, write this book about American foreign policy superpower without a mission about the Clinton period, then get absorbed into, uh, into the whole United States discussion. I, I think Chatham House was really the place to do it, to be perfectly honest. If you look around 
if not Chatham House, then where? And a very difficult to think of where it might have been located. You know, it had enough academic credibility. It had enough policy relevance. It had enough Anglo-American and transatlantic more generally credibility. And that therefore I think made it a very good place to go. The other thing I'd say is of course, you know, it's, it's not criticism of my American friends, but you know, you know it, it was a very familiar place for American visitors. I think that has to be said as well. We know how many Americans over the years have come to study at the LSE, of course, and of course, may even come in greater numbers now you know, with, with the consolidation of the US Center. This, this raises LSE's profile as much as it raises the US Center's uh, profile. But nonetheless, you know, there was this there was this kind of sense that for Americans, they kind of looked across the Atlantic. OK, they may have understood Paris and, and the think tanks there or in Berlin or, or in Rome. But I think it was easier. And in a sense, it's, it was an expression, although people don't like to use the terms, it was a bit of an expression of the special relationship. The kind of sense that the Brits and the Americans for cultural, linguistic, historic reasons, you, you know the story, Chris, somehow or another have easier forms of communication but doesn't make the relationship always easy by any stretch of the imagination and i think that's an also an important thing to it's not just a love it or a love fest between the us and the uk and indeed if you go back in the history of chatham house there's been very serious moments in time where where chatham house uh, or the americans more generally you know have fallen out very badly you know particularly over the suez crisis 56 you know there i think in chatham house itself be fair to say they weren't very were very positively inclined towards Ronald Reagan in, in the early part of the 1980s. You know, it's not always been it's not always been straightforward flying, but it's it's been certainly a very positive relationship going right back to the to the to the foundation of the Council on Foreign Relations in Chatham House in 1920 21. Thank you. So thinking about that that special relationship between the UK and, and the US, that long-standing historic relationship. Does that special relationship give UK think tanks like Chatham House a unique insight into the, into US politics that you might not see other think tanks elsewhere having? Maybe I, you know I never I never want to be critical of what other people are doing, partly because it's rude, partly because it's not very diplomatic, and partly because I don't think it's true. I think there's some very good work which has been done in a number of other think tanks and uh, across Europe. You know, I, I look at what happens happens in Paris. I know friends down in Italy. At the Istituto Affari Internazionale, they do great work down there. There's wonderful think tanks in Sweden, and great think tanks, by the way, too in Norway, which you know is coming down as four or five excellent think tanks, which all have a transatlantic rather than specifically uh, Norwegian focus for pretty obvious reasons. So yeah, you know, I don't think there's anything you know which, which Chatham House does which is not now being done elsewhere, and I think what's being done now elsewhere. It is, 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 you know, it's, it's kind of telling everybody, you know, well, you know, there's other people out there doing a lot of good work on, 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 on the United States as think tanks. And, and of course, there's been intellectuals and in, individuals in, in, the, in the long history of the American Republic have always taken a deep interest in the United States, and they've not necessarily just been British. Um, you know, best book ever written on American democracy in the early part of the 19th century. <laughs> Um, by Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, he was a Frenchman, obviously. Great book written in the early part of the 20th century, 19th century. Why is there no socialism in the United States? Very influential book, actually. By Werner Sombach. He was a German. 
um, you know, one of my great Norwegian friends, Gail Lundestad, who was director of the Nobel Institute um, in, in Oslo for many, very many successful years, wrote wonderful books on the American relationship with the transatlantic relationship. He had a very American focus um, because he indeed had done his own done his own doctoral work, I think, in, in, in the US. And of course, there's a fairly substantial Norwegian community over there as well. So all those things mean that therefore, it's not just the Chatham House thing or a British thing. I think we've got to be aware of that and not, and, and not get consumed too much by the special relationship. I only said that in the case of Chatham House and CFR, there was a, a special relationship at the beginning and that may indeed have given credibility to how Americans viewed what was being said in Europe because in a way they regarded Britain as part of Europe, but very specifically British as well, with that lot, with that long, that long connected cultural tradition. But having said all that, I still think we get back to something I mentioned earlier on without going over it in too much detail again. Language makes a difference. Um, it does make a difference. You know, there is a linguistic affinity. Um, you know, there's a long historical relationship going back to the foundation of the US as a colony, the colonies. It wasn't just the British French, of course. The Germans were there in very large numbers, the Dutch were there in very, and so indeed with the French and the Spanish and everybody else. But in the end, it was a British colony. In the end, it was the British who were kicked out of the United States after the Battle of Yorktown. And many of those who created the United States, you know, although they threw out the British, did not throw out every single British value as they understood it. George Washington, after all, was an English gentleman. And, you know, and, and even though even though dear Thomas Jefferson was not greatly in love with the British, much preferred the French. Um, and nonetheless, there was something very Anglo about it. And you think how many presidents in the United States have really been Anglos in one way or another. Very few have not been, uh, except for the two Roosevelts, one or two others, of course, Eisenhower. So there is that. There is that. And it's, it's quite... The other thing I'd also add, add in there, Chris, quite simply, is it's, it's simply the, conf the great wars of the 20th century. Every time there's been a great war in the 20th century, tragically, you know, whether reluctantly or decisively, whether they wanted to or not, whether there's a lot of opposition to getting involved, as indeed there was on the other side of the Atlantic, as in the end, Wilson came in on, on, the, on the Allied side, it wasn't just the British, it came in on the side of the French as well, and Russians, but he came in, you know, and it was easy for Wilson to engage with, maybe easier with, with Lord George, who was not English, of course, but Welsh, but nonetheless easier to engage. And at the end of the Second World War, we think of the Second World War, okay, Stalin was clearly a major player in that war. Some would even say Russia won the war. Soviet Union won the war for the Allies in the end because of how many, how many people they threw into the field. Yet we think of it as, as Churchill and FDR, you know, I mean, that's how we think of it. Uh, the origin of NATO, although many other countries there, including, by the way, France, others, you know, there was very much something very Anglo-American about it at the beginning. And if you go through the great relationships in the post-war period, you know, John F. Kennedy, closest relationship with Harold Macmillan, you know, of course, never forget Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Uh, never forget Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, and then Tony Blair and George Bush uh, Jr. You know, so there is that dimension. And that's all I, I, I don't therefore say that others have not done good work or have not engaged in that relationship, but there is, there is that relationship which can't, can't be denied. Thank you. So thinking about sort of Chatham House as, as, a, as a place and a forum for researching and explaining, or apparently explains the US from an outside perspective, I, I know in your, your paper, you talk a bit about sort of the, 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 the if, I, if I understand it correctly, the lack of that, of a place to, uh, to explain the US outside of the US. What's the value of having a place or forum like Chatham House 
or even the, the you know the LSE US Center uh, now to research the US from an outside perspective. Well, I, I, this is not to, again to criticize any of our American colleagues, but and, and of course, let's let's be blunt. There are so many American scholars and policymakers and think tankers in and around Washington and all across the United States who who are almost you know preoccupied with what's going on inside the US. Maybe sometimes to the detriment of studying what's going on in the outside world. Um, you know, I think they are very internally fixated or fixated particularly on US foreign policy. Understandably. If you're the hegemon, you, know, you, you generate interest. People want to know what you do, what you think, what you say, and what you intend to do in the future. So, I, you know, the, the, so inevitably, the great amount of that is, I think, and I, I don't worry about this too much because there's so many good American scholars and people in the US working on this. You know, but the great bulk of this is still going to be done in the US. Point one. Uh, you know, as I, I always say to people, get used to it. You know, you know, America, IR is still not entirely dominated by the US, and I don't, I don't think it should be, and I'm not quite sure there's any reason why it should be. There's some good work being done elsewhere. But nonetheless, as many people pointed out over the years, since the end of the Cold War, since the end of the Second World War, you know, the hegemon has determined, you know, basically who studies the world and who studies American foreign policy, and that basically is going to be American. You know, if you think of the great names in US foreign policy studies, you know, you know nine-tenths of them are going to be are going to be American, including, by the way, of course, the director of the US, the US Center, <laughs> Pete Trubovitz, of course, came, came over to the LSE many, many years ago, and I'm very pleased that he did. So what can an outside perspective bring? It's a good question, and I'm, I, I can come up with a glib answer. Perspective, perspective, perspective. But I think that's a bit arrogant. I do think, however, standing outside a bit can give you some, you can see things that people inside often don't see, I think. I think that does, does, I'm not going to give myself any special, you know, pats on the back here, uh, but nonetheless, I think that does happen. People from outside can often maybe also be a little bit more critical. And not to say there's no critics of American foreign policy in the United States, there certainly are very large numbers of them. Always has been, which of course is one of the one of the most uh, endearing qualities about the United States, and some of its most vehement critics are American of its, for, of its foreign policy, and not, not just of Donald Trump either. But I think, again, there is a way in which I suppose people from outside the United States, not living in the United States, not being American, maybe again, I, I, I float this as an argument, not as a, an absolute truth, whether or not they, they can be a little bit more critical. I think also the question is how you want to be critical. I think this is also important as well. You know, when I wrote my book back in the 90s, Clinton was very much in favor in Europe and in Britain. People liked it, like, in the same way they came to like Obama, uh, very much so, you know, noticeably both Democrats. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's something to be said about that. When it came to Bush, Bush became very unpopular. I remember, by the way, hosting debates at the LSE in two, two, three, four, as the Iraq war unfolded. You know, anti-Americanism did, did rise up rather considerably. And of course, under Trump, it, it's gone through the roof, to be perfectly, or well, not anti-Americanism, but often, you know, criticism of Trump, not so much anti-Americanism, which is quite interesting. Um, so maybe it's, going back to my point, I think my point is that it's the question of how you critique, if you want to critique and do need to have a critical perspective, and I think if it's done in a way that both recognizes America's role in the world, which in the end, I've always believed to be in, in, on a balance, 
doing more good than harm. And indeed, I'm not quite sure what we would do without the United States. That's my doing IR, you kind of do get sucked in. Well, if not the United States, then who? Um, you know, sports and all. Um, and if it goes wrong, maybe the world also goes wrong. If it does wrong and you know behaves or misbehaves and, and takes actions which you know are, are, are badly informed and, and lead to problematic consequences, I think they did after Iraq, then everybody suffers. You know, every, everybody takes a hit from that. So I think what I try to do, and I think people I know around me try to, rather than just denouncing the United States and saying, you know, well, the empire, imperialism, you know, gun culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all, 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 all the race issue, which of course is very, very important naturally, comes into American foreign policy a lot, much more so, much more so I think over the years than people are even giving me credit, even, even, even talked about. I think, you know, getting a critical perspective, a distant perspective from the outside, but one which also tries to provide, dare I even use that old fashioned academic word balance into that debate. And I, th I think that's what at least an outsider should do. And if you don't get that balance into it, then to be perfectly honest, you won't be listened to in the United States because they, th they think you're just an anti-American having having another rant at, at the worst country in the world as, as some, sometimes caricature the United States. Then you're, not, then you're simply not going to be listened to. And I think it is important to get get to be listened to over there as well as, as it is over here. Thanks. Um, just thinking about you talking about the importance of being listened to, how much sort of cut through would you say organizations in, in the UK like Chatham House have at sort of high levels in the US in terms of decision makers? Are they being listened to? Are the policy papers being read that, that you're aware of? You know, what sort of, do you have any sense of the impact? Uh, impact, 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 impact. Very important. Why do you have a think tank if you, if you don't think you're going to have impact? I don't have an easy answer to that question. I'd like to say, Chris, that everything we did in the United States discussion group immediately went into the into the into the West Wing, or people sat around talking about it all the time over there. I'm not sure. Uh, getting an audience as non-Americans is is not always as easy as you think. <laughs> uh, that's my judgment after 30, 40 years going back and forth to the US over many years. Going back to the 1980s, my first visit then to San Diego. And, um, you will be listened to. You will be listened to, as long as the tone of your critique is, I think, the right one. As long as it's informed. Uh, as long as you bring something new to the table, something different to the story. Don't repeat what's already being said. But having said that, and I think we did have some impact. You know, people came, Americans came through, serious Americans came through. They knew that Chatham House was doing good work on the United States, I think, as indeed they know that the US Center at the LSE is doing great work on, on, on the United States. So they will listen, they, they take note, and it forms part of the global public opinion, which also can shape and does influence, you know. Chatham House has a high number, very influential Americans who come through, uh, they had John Kerry just the other day talking on climate change at Chatham House, you know, so that makes a difference. People like Joe Nye used to come through, even dear old John Bolton, you know, one of the one of the old conservatives used to come and speak at Chatham House. And they therefore know that getting an audience at Chatham House is not unimportant for influencing international opinion, 
But if, reverse that, then if you're in a serious think tank with 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 like impact you're talking about, like China, you will then have an impact feedback into the loop, which is the United States. So if in fact I think people do go chat about some fight, oh my God, did you know that everybody that's criticizing what we're doing, say on withdrawal from Afghanistan or you know, or, or whatever, or whatever, Chris, then I think that will feed in to the loop. Now, how much impact in the end any of us have in terms of decision-making, I don't know. And secondly, of course, who are we competing against? We're competing against very, very well-funded American-based think tanks. I mean, how many can you name? More, more than me, I imagine, Chris, on foreign policy, you know, the, the CFR, Brookings, CSIS, all the various speciality think tanks, say, on nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, regional think tanks and the US foreign policy. You know, it is a vast industry in the United States. So we've got to be realistic about how much influence we can have. But at the same time, I think we can have the influence if what we say is interesting, important, reasoned, well, well, well argued, and you can get it out to the, to the right peoples over there. And in the end, you know, there is quite a lot of flow back and forth across the Atlantic and between US and UK. You know, you know how many Americans study at the LSE, how many, how many you know, of us go over to, to work with colleagues at, at, in the United States. It does have a flow factor and feeds in over time, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'd like to, to turn to talk about your upcoming book now, um, Agonies of Empire, American Power from Clinton to Biden. So in that book, you, you explore the current moment in US politics and foreign policy, which you, you call the decisive tipping point. Can you give us uh, and, and our listeners a preview of, of your essays about how the last 30 years have led to us to today, which sees America starkly divided at home and facing skepticism about its leadership abroad? Well, if you like, it, it starts on a very high note. I mean, if, if we take ourselves back to 89, 1991, the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the USSR, um, let's, let's not kid ourselves. This was a real high moment. For, for America in the world. The other superpower effectively collapsed. The ideology it espoused had been found wanting, put it nicely. Uh, the Soviet Union was withdrawing from support for the East European communist states. That led to the reunification or unification of Europe and Germany. It withdrew support from third world revolutionaries uh, and some third world and, and a number of communist states in, in what we call the third world, or used to call the third world, like Cuba or North Korea. So it seemed like a massive victory for the US. You know, you remember Francis Fukuyama talked about the end of history. Well, I think that, in essence, that's, I think that's what he was saying. And I know there are many things that people didn't like about the Fukuyama thesis, but if in essence we take it as being, well, we won and you lost, and therefore this opens up huge potential, then I think there's no way of actually interpreting what happened other than that, whether you want to call it a victory caused by Ronald Reagan, or whether it was caused by the success of democracy, or whether it was caused by NATO, whether it was simply caused because the Soviet Union just decided it couldn't any longer compete economically or materially with the with, with West more generally, not just the United States. So the story starts really on a very high note. And in some ways, Clinton, as in many things, has turned out, turned out to be a very lucky president, I think. You know, he hit an economic boom, part of which was created by Reagan, uh, but nonetheless, he pursued policies which accelerated that. He understood the global economy, although I don't think he understood enough about the downsides of globalization, which later came home, I think, to, to strike. 
Um, he certainly understood a way of engaging Americans on the issues that they wanted to be engaged on. So he did try and keep away from as many wars as possible. But I still think he had a cut. So what I try and do then is say, this was the 1990s, if you like, the great liberal moment. Optimism, American economy, you know, eight great, eight fantastic years, didn't get pulled into any major wars. It brought about and helped bring about a peace process in Northern Ireland. Clinton was very, very popular in Europe amongst most Europeans. Uh, and American power, and I'll get to that point, American power just looked formidable. The French foreign minister, Hubert Vedrine, said it's not a superpower, it's a hyperpower. And of course, many of us at the time started talking about America as a new kind of liberal empire. So that's where we were. And what I explore in the book through a series of essays, first looking at the Clinton years, then at Bush Jr., then moving to the eight years of Obama, then the four years of Donald Trump, and then into Biden. So I cover the five presidents, and one, of course, of those has not come to an end yet. So I do it presidentially, which, I, which is both easier and I think intellectually justifiable. But the question is then, the question then becomes, what went wrong? And that's what I explore through the presidencies after Clinton. As I say, I think Clinton had a relatively easy ride. And, you know, he, he picked up the bonus, if you like, uh, presented to him. And of course, many things are being settled over that time, not just in the Cold War, but you know, apartheid was coming to an end. Dictatorships were falling all over, falling down all over Latin America. Taiwan and South Korea were moving to democracy. The global economy was on an up, a very big up. And of course, there was still an open open door towards a peace process in the Middle East. Hadn't been it hadn't been closed just yet, particularly over the Israel-Palestinian issue. And and China at that stage was not a major player. And Russia was disintegrating, declining. So those were the Clinton years, and that's what I deal with, really, following on from, I don't put it all down to Clinton, but I simply say, you know, in a way he pursued, I think, policies which made a lot of economic sense, uh, but nonetheless, he also got lucky. And so what I then do, Chris, and these takes you through the, the next presidents, is, in a sense, what went wrong. I'm not, I'm not actually trying to find someone to blame. I kind of find that way of understanding US foreign policy a, a little bit fruitless. Um, you can be critical of certain decisions taken, as I certainly was and still am of the Iraq decision uh, back in 2002-03. But nonetheless, where did it start to go wrong? Or, or what, what, what began to unravel? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Well, we know what happened. I mean, 9-11 happened. And you are then faced, objectively speaking, with you know a, a very serious terrorist threat, which was already there in the 1990s, of course. They nearly blew up the World Trade Center back in 1991-92-93. They blew up the American embassies in East Africa in, what, 98. So, but, you know, they got lucky one day, that was September 11, 2001. And I think that changed everything. America's reaction to that was both understandable, reasonable in many ways, but actually led America to, I think, this is my own take on it, people may disagree with that. It, it went far too far, you know, kind of threw out Gen Geneva Conventions on torture, it interpreted victory over the Taliban in Afghanistan almost as a green light to reshape and remake the Middle East. And that's led to the Iraq war. Um, you know, the Greeks had a wonderful word called hubris. You know, you go to, you think you've got all the power in the world, you think you can use it and change the world. Well, maybe 
this was the hubristic moment and it, and it came to bite, bite, bite America back. And I think we're still living in a world, obviously we're still living in a world shaped by that original 9-11 attack and the decision to go to war. As we saw with what's happened in Syria, what, what is happening today in Afghanistan, what is today happening in Iraq, what's happening to, to Iran. Whether any of that was avoidable, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I believe the Bush administration either misinterpreted or decided to interpret 9-11 in a particular way. Uh, and, and I think that led to overreach and to, to, a, to a war of choice. And I don't think the United States should go around fighting wars of choice. I think that, that that's the beginning of it, Chris. I think that's where it was. Whether a, a democratic administration would afford it differently to the Bush administration, we can talk about forever. But we are where we are. I think the second, the second big change, and I'll, I'll be because it's a lot to talk about. Chris. The second big change, again, whether you put that down to was it about globalization's fault, or was it because of financialization of the economic system, or was it because of you know providing mortgages to people in the United States which they couldn't afford to pay? Uh, was it because of new econ economies coming into the world economy, making things cheap and keeping interest rates low for a very long time? You know, there's a huge literature on the origins of the 2008 crisis, much of which I've read and, and a good part of which I think I've even understood. Um, but again, that was a huge hit for the United States and its credibility and indeed for the American model. I then would add two other factors into that. And you can't, you can't avoid China, you know, back in the early 1990s. China, in a sense, wasn't irrelevant, but it wasn't as relevant. And by when we get after 2008, joins the WTO, what, 2001, 2000, that time, opens up markets, huge access to Western markets, the United States. You know, the rise of China has destabilized the United States and destabilized the debate. I, I think there's no doubt about it. It may have been of economic benefit, but as we can see from Trump, you know, you know what was Trump's principal problem as he saw it? apart from the Democrats and Barack Obama and the liberal press and all sorts of other enemies he identified at home. Well, what was his major problem was China. You know, they're raping our country, to use his term economically. You know, they're taking us for a ride. You know, we've got to do something about it. And he, he drew around him some very tough-minded trade people on, on, on China, like Peter Navarro, Robert Lighthizer, and a whole bunch of other people. And that's where we got. To. So Trump was, a, in a sense, a response to China. And of course, a rejection of the earlier attempt by, uh, by, by Clinton, indeed by Bush Jr., and indeed by, by Obama for a period, you know, to make China a stakeholder. That's been thrown out. But that, again, I think has had a huge, huge impact and will continue to have once we see with the Biden administration. Uh, there's a whole question of the downsides of globalization, which we can talk about a bit more. But the final thing I'd talk about really is Russia. I'm an old Soviet specialist. I go back a long way. I, I was a Sovietologist, as we used to call ourselves in the very old days. I always thought in the 1990s, I think Clinton tried. He talked a good talk, but he didn't deliver much aid to Russia. I, 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 you know, the 1990s, I think, turns out to be a crucial moment in the history of US-Russian relations. And at, at the end of it, of course, Russia comes out with Putin in charge, arguing that the US is trying to destroy us and turn us into a third world country, doesn't respect us as a great power, enlarge NATO. We go on forever about who lost Russia. Uh, but I think we also underestimated Russia. And uh, I think, you know, we, we thought in the 1990s it was just going to keep declining. And I think Putin has taught us a bit of a lesson. And Russia coming back, 
I think has also added to it. So what I deal with are the, what I call the larger structural uh, long-term trends, whether it's about terrorism, whether it's about global economy, whether it's about the rise of China, the, the, coming back to a great, trying to come back to a great power status of Russia. One final point I'd also say, and one thing I don't deal enough with, and I think somebody like Peter Trubovitz would deal with it much better than I, because he much more focuses on the domestic side. And I know Peter has written about that, and he'll come out in his own book soon, is it's on the degree of polarization in the United States as well. It be, I don't know when we say it began. I mean, America's never ever been a completely united country. After all, you had a, America had a civil war. And, and the, you know, the South is different to the North, <laughs> even in the 60s when I lived in Virginia. Uh, it divided in the 1960s culturally with the rise of a new left, you know, the kind of anti-establishment changes, you know, changing sexualities and all sorts of, all those kinds of issues. All sorts of things produces a polarization. Perhaps the Cold War held that polarization in check, you know, kept Americans focused on an enemy without, and therefore kept it united at home. Is it to do with socioeconomic changes? Is it to do with new demands, whatever? But Peter, I think, has written about this, and it's not, not enough I deal with in the book, although I deal with it a little bit, is how you can construct a coherent foreign policy when there's no real consensus at home about what it is to be an American. And uh, I, I do deal with that and, uh, you know, I try, try, try to integrate that, bring the domestic into the foreign policy. But anyway, that gives you a very, very <laughs> big overview of what I try to do in my book called The Agonism of American Empire. One last point, though, Chris, and I do want to emphasize it. I don't buy into the view, which is it's pretty popular and has been around for a long time, that uh, America is in decline in terms of power. I think America faces huge challenges, and I've given you the reasons why I think those challenges are serious. They're both external and internal. Getting over the Trump legacy is going to be very difficult. Trumpism has not gone away. Um, you know, there's much still, and of course, we're still living in the midst of the COVID pandemic. We need to remind ourselves, and we don't know where that's going to pan out, what the consequences of that's going to be either on the United States and the rest of the world. Certainly not help relations between the US and uh, China. But I think we are therefore in a situation where it is easy to turn around and say, American moment is over. It's not where it was in the Cold War when it was leading the Westboro moment, the unipolar moment, as some like to call it. Okay, we're not there any longer for the changes that have been brought about for the reasons I've already given. Nonetheless, the United States capabilities still are vast. And in a way, I, I, I think what I'm trying to argue in the book to conclude, Chris, is the paradox, really, or the conundrum or the contradiction, possibly, I don't know quite what, what the right word is, of a country like the United States, which just has such formidable assets. You know, I mean, it's still 20, 22, 23% of world GDP. It accounts for 40% of foreign direct investment in the world. People still have to hold the dollar if they want to do international trade. The Federal Reserve makes a decision. We all have to jump one way or another. You know, the military capability of the United States, you know, 11 carrier groups, spends more as much on national security as do the next 10, 11 countries put together. A vast intelligence network, allies all over the world, and even if some of those alliances have been a bit tattered uh, over the last few years, they're still there. 
You know, Japan doesn't look to anybody else except the United States and all of the Europeans look to anybody else but the United States, ultimately for security. You add all that together, plus a very dynamic economy. You look at the top 10 corporations in the world by brand, by market capitalization. My goodness me, a lot of those are still American. Look at the universities' rankings in the world, which we take very seriously, of course, Chris, as you know, particularly here at the LSE. Again, you know, you know, in the top 10, you've got, you know, two or three or four others, maybe Oxford, Cambridge, get in there, Imperial College, London gets in there, but the rest, you know, America. It's not to deny other people's capabilities. It is to say that still the United States has a vast number. So, and last, but by no means least, if you look at the Nobel Prizes being won in the STEM subjects, and this is something I do, I've done a little bit of research on. It, does, it doesn't take a lot of research. Well, what do you see? You know, a, I don't know what the percentage is exactly, but, you know, it's a very, very high proportion of all Nobel Prizes over, say, over the last 20 years since the beginning of the century. You know, how many of those have come out of other countries and how many of those have come out of US-based universities and US-based researchers, even if they were born in India, even if they were born in Britain, doesn't really matter. They're working in the United. And again, that to me is a, is a, major, is a major metric for measuring crowds. So although I say there's an agony of empire and America's gone through all these very difficult periods over time, Nonetheless, we shouldn't equate that with a, a simple notion of, of decline, which I think some, some scholars and pundits have tended to do. And that's what I end the book on, really. So it ends both on a pessimistic note, we've got a lot of problems to deal with, you know, but it also ends on a, not, if you call it an optimistic note, but at least on a note of saying, well, come on, don't, don't under, understate the degree of power that America still has in the international system. Thank you. And if I may, I'd just like to sort of round off our discussion with, with one final question. Most people's understanding of, of international relations and how it's studied is about nations and decision makers and, and policies between nations. You've talked about you know, decades of change and, and, and the unexpectedness of the Soviet Union uh, collapsing. What we're seeing now is, is a time of, of new change with pandemics like COVID-19 and, and climate change that aren't based on state actors, then, then these aren't countries that we have to negotiate or deal with. Do you think that, that think tanks like Chatham House, how well are they equipped to deal with these and, and sort of analyze these new challenges um, sort of going forward? Well, I'd, I'd like to think they are pretty well, pretty well, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, let's be perfectly honest, it's not going to be people like me are going to be doing all the new research on the new issues and the new agenda. I might try and do my best, but you know, uh, I'll make my contribution, but you know, a lot of new young people coming in uh, from, uh, by the way, I should also say from a totally different kind of variety of people, whether by, by, by gender or, or by sexual orientation or, or by race, all those things really are going to bring in new, much newer and, and, and newer perspectives and different ways of thinking about it. The, the question of race in the world, the question of women in politics, the whole question, the whole question of climate change didn't. Okay, it had a state-based orientation. I mean, you could you could give Japan a big pat on the back. You could give, say, the European Union, which is not a state, but you give them a big pat on the back on the climate change. But much of that has come from below, from non non-state actors and 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 interventions by even key individuals. Uh, so we we got to keep up with the, not just keep up. We've got to be at the front of the queue, really in terms of seeing where we think the world, and if we look at some of the big questions in the future, are they just going to be, how, as you pointed out, Chris, are they just going to be about states relating to other states? That's going to be a very large part of it. Don't rule it out. There's been too much kind of talk about 
states are irrelevant. You know, it's an old realist paradigm and it's old fashioned. Well, states are still important. You can't join the UN without being a state, you know. You know, arm, arm, states and armies go together. You know, states are what we have for, for good or ill in as the unit of international society, international system. But you're quite right to pose that question about all the changing things that are happening in terms of where did we see this pandemic coming? Well, yes and no. You go back and look at the, the you know, the, the expert literature, a lot of them were saying 10, 15, 20 years ago, something's going to happen. Did we actually prepare for it? No. Or were we prepared for it? We certainly were not. It was what we call a, it wasn't a classic black swan because we kind of knew it was going to come towards us. It wasn't entirely unexpected, but certainly it's a black swan in terms of impact. Did we know about it? What about the changing demographics in the world? You know, I mean, this is not state, this is just people having lots of babies, you know, around the world. Um, what's, and if that's very unevenly dispute, distributed in terms of who gets what, when, and where in terms of healthcare, jobs, possibilities, Think of, a, think of a world in 10 years' time which might even have two or three billion more people. And what happens if large numbers of those people in the South, we call the global South, better than the word third world, you know, what happens if they can't get jobs? You know, what happens if they don't have any futures? Young people, young men, young women, they'll do what they've been doing throughout history. They'll, they'll move. So, you know, the question of migration of peoples, which, of course, is central to the whole American experience, of course, because it's created by immigrants, you know, it's going to become increasingly important, I think, more so than ever. Think of some of the demographics. I mean, I've heard people talking to me about a country like Nigeria. Now, that's the state, but the state has very little control over what's going on, or much less control. And so, therefore, if, if population rises to 400 million and the number of jobs available, you know, and, and, and the opportunity, what's going to happen? Even this pandemic is reinforcing what I think is really, and I think policymakers have at last woken up to levels of inequality in the world. You know, I mean, if, if the pandemic has exposed anything, it's exposed a lot of things, we don't need to go into all of them. Uh, it also exposes if you have good government, you can, good governance, you, you can actually address these questions. We don't have good governance, you don't have healthcare systems, you just can't. Uh, and that is why the North will, I think, the global North will in the end come out of this a little bit better. Uh, for simple reasons, because of resources and material bases and a healthcare system. But if the global South, you know, comes out of this worse, which I think in the end, sadly and tragically, I think there's a good chance it will, then where are a lot of people going to move to? If there's no, if it has such a huge, that's a non-state problem, you know, that's to do with, you know, the resource allocation in the world today and inequality since, since Thomas Piketty wrote his great book some years ago, first in French and then in English, when then people started to read it, by the way, interestingly. Uh, well, you, you can work it out yourself. You can work it out. So what's going to happen on that border between Mexico and the United States? What's going to happen across the Mediterranean? What's going to happen across the Aegean Sea? You know, you know what we have seen so far may actually be fairly, fairly low level. What can think tanks contribute to that? Well, I think they are. Uh, well, Chatham House is one of only many think tanks in the world. We are part of a global think tank system. I call it a system loose affiliation which is uh does good work uh out of pennsylvania led by a man called jim mcgann you know he does some good work pulling all this together i've heard some wonderful works being done outside chatham house but also inside chatham house on all these big big non-state issues you know the non-state issues but we will always be drawn back to states chris for for one simple reason they are central to people's everyday lives 
It's the state that most individuals in the world look to for security. Many people in the world wish they had a state that functioned. <laughs> um, and they wish they sometimes had a passport with the state's name on it. And the worst thing in the world to be today for many people, sadly, is being stateless. And we'll also come back to states for something very, 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 very important. It's going to be determined by the great powers and the big powers. You know, it's, it's very unfortunate that, what do they say, the, the powerful do what they must and the weak suffer what they have to. Well, it's not quite like that. That's, that's a quote from Thucydides, of course, in his great book on the Peloponnesian War. Still, to be, still should be read, by the way. But nonetheless, it just tells you that, you know, the, the most powerful states in the world today are states. The most powerful actors in the world today are two states. And one of those is called the United States of America, for the reasons I've already given. And the other one's called China, with its 1.4 billion people and with a, with a rising economy, uh, with a different political system, and with a clear desire not to just fit into an American-created liberal order. Now, the pessimists say, well, when this happens, you've got trouble. You know, rising powers running into existing powers that don't want to accept the rising power. You know, Thucydides talked of a trap. You know, you get locked into it because you can't, you can't escape this trap. And there are a number of American writers and others, like, say, John Mearsheimer, the great John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago. John has often argued, you know, that we are, we'd love to avoid increasing conflict between the two great states of the future, the United States, the existing hegemon, and China, the rising power. But history does tell us, and hopefully we can avoid this, but history tells us, and this was done by an American, uh, American university, Harvard under Graham Allison some years ago, the Thucydides uh, study group. What, what, did you, what did you find of 14 power transitions in history or 16 and 12 of those ended in war? And I suppose that's about states. That's about state formations. So let's keep focused on all the, the non-state uh, challenges, all the non-state actors, and hopefully they becoming and they already are, of course, important members of, of the debate about foreign policy about the United States, and they won't go away because they're here to stay. All the think tanks, including Chatham House, uh, but nonetheless, we are going to be constantly coming back to the big question about states whether it's the United States of America, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, even whether it's the UK, uh, which is a very middling, and I might, I might add also probably a declining power, but that's another question I'm not going to raise and discuss here today with you, Chris. Another question for another time, possibly. Thank you so much. I, I think that's a great uh, place for us to, to finish our discussion. Professor Michael Cox, thanks so much for speaking to us today. Thanks very much, Chris, and thanks for hosting, and very good luck to the US Centre as it moves forward. Professor Michael Cox is the founding director of LSE Ideas. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor Mick Cox for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Michaela Herman, and Alina Ganatra. To listen to all of our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us, and tell your friends about us. 
The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the failing U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.